Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode contains distressing themes and descriptions of violence. This podcast is intended for a mature audience. Listener caution is advised. They Walk Among Us is part of the Acast Creator Network. When mutilated human remains are found scattered across Richmond in London, a remorseless killer will go to extreme lengths to distance themselves from the crime. It would take over a century for the final piece of the puzzle to be found. Welcome to They Walk Among Us, a podcast dedicated to UK true crime. This is the 32nd in a series of bonus episodes. On Wednesday, March 5th, 1879, just as the sun rose, two coal merchants were making their way along the banks of the River Thames. As the cart approached Barnes Bridge, one of the men, Henry Wheatley, noticed something bobbing in the murky water. Henry told his colleague to stop the cart so he could have a look at the object. He walked towards the water's edge. Henry could see that it was a hinged wooden box. He pulled it on to the riverbank and found the lid was closed tightly and secured with cord. Henry pulled a knife from his pocket and severed the cord, but the heavy box remained sealed. Determined to know what was inside, He swung his foot, and the force of his boot splintered the box apart. Henry stumbled backwards as pieces of what appeared to be flesh wrapped in brown paper spilt out from the fractured package. 
believed the contents were human remains and reported what he had found to the Barnes Constabulary. Inspectors travelled to the river with a local doctor in tow. Dr. Adams concurred that the remains were human, and so the body parts were gathered up and transported to the station for examination. There it was discovered that the female body had been dissected, but the head and extremities were missing. The mutilated remains were then taken to the local mortuary to be examined by a pathologist. At first, it was suspected that the body had been used as a medical subject before being crudely disposed of by students, but upon closer inspection, it was clear the mutilation had been carried out by someone without expertise or precision. It was concluded that a blunt axe had been used to remove the head and limbs after the woman was already dead. However, there were no clues to point to the identity of the victim, who, had it not been for two unsuspecting coal merchants, would have remained unidentified and undiscovered. An inquest was held on March 10, 1879 at the Red Lion Inn in Barnes, overseen by the coroner of Surrey's Western Division. Dr. Adams testified about the contents of the box. I found the trunk and other portions of the body of a woman. The heart was in the cavity of the chest. I found a portion of the right lung, but the left lung was absent. Attached to the trunk was the right shoulder. The upper part of the left arm had been detached and I found it to be perfect down to the elbow. A portion of the thigh of the right leg and the remainder of the leg down to the ankle was also among the remains. A part of the pelvis was present, as was a small portion of the spine. The rectum was divided. The head was absent. I should think the woman had been dead for about a week while the remains might have been in the water for about two days. From what I can see, I should say that the remains must have been those of a woman between 18 and 30, and she may have borne children. Her height may have been about 5 feet 3 to 4 inches, judging from the measurement of the parts that were found, and making allowance for those that were absent. I think she must have been a dark-haired woman. In my opinion, all the fractures to the bones must have been made after death and had been made very unskillfully with bad instruments. The mutilation must have been a work of time. The bones must have been smashed with a blunt instrument. I could see no marks on the remains which could have been inflicted before death or could have caused it. The inquest was adjourned for a week. However, another gruesome discovery was made that same day. George William Court, a servant for a Twickenham general practitioner, Dr. Clark, had been wheeling manure on the doctor's rented allotment when he noticed something horrifying in the heap. 
In shock, George Court covered the object before eventually mustering up the courage to go back to take what he had found to Dr. Clark's surgery. There it was confirmed to be a severed foot. Mortified, Dr. Clark notified the authorities. It was understood that the foot belonged to the woman whose remains had been found in a wooden box that had washed up on the bank of the River Thames. A police surgeon, Dr. Thomas Bond, was brought in. After he also examined the remains, he disagreed with the findings of the initial physician, Dr. Adams. Dr. Bond concluded the victim was older, maybe around 50. He noted that all of the body parts except the right thigh were shrunken and discoloured. At first, the appearance was attributed to the fact that the box had been in the Thames, but Dr. Bond came to another conclusion. He believed that they had been exposed to a very high temperature, which had softened the ligature and cartilage to such an extent that they had become almost gelatinous. They had been boiled. The inquest was adjourned in the hopes that in time, more body parts or the victim's identity would be uncovered. On March 21st, 1879, two men arrived at the home of Mr. and Mrs. Menhenick in Finsbury Park. They had a letter with them that had been written by Mrs. Menhenick addressed to a Mrs. Thomas. The two men, John Church and Henry Porter, told the Menhenicks that they had recently purchased some furniture from Mrs. Thomas at her home in Richmond, two Mayfield cottages. Church said that he had paid £18 as a deposit for the furniture, with the intention of paying the rest when he had possession of the items. But as they were removing the furniture, Mrs. Thomas exchanged some words with the next-door neighbour and left suddenly. She had thrown two dresses onto the cart used to transport the furniture, and a letter written by Mrs. Menhenick was found inside one of the pockets of the dresses. Some rings were discovered in another. Church was disturbed by what had happened, and by the time he got home he learned that Mrs. Thomas had borrowed a sovereign gold coin from his wife, and he had not heard from Mrs. Thomas since. Suspicious, Church decided to track down the woman he knew as Mrs. Thomas by visiting Mrs. Menhenick in Finsbury Park to find out what she knew. Mr. Menhenick asked John Church what Mrs. Thomas was like, and John said she was a big and tall young woman with a heavy Irish accent. The Mrs. Thomas the Menhenicks had known for a decade, Julia Martha Thomas, was a petite English woman in her fifties. Mr. Menhenick, Henry Porter and John Church made their way to meet William Henry Hughes, the brother of Mrs. Thomas's solicitor and executor. He identified the rings as belonging to his client, and at this point they realised that the real Mrs. Thomas was missing. Julia Martha Thomas, 
commonly referred to as Mrs. Thomas, was a twice-widowed, eccentric woman who moved frequently and mostly kept to herself. She had inherited money after her husband's death, but not enough to live as comfortably as she would have liked. However, by all appearances, she was well off. Her years as a school teacher meant that she was quick to correct any perceived flaws in others, and for this reason she found it hard to keep servants employed for any length of time. Mrs. Thomas rented two Mayfield cottages from Mrs. Ives, who lived next door in the right portion of the semi-detached villa-style property. The large Victorian house was a lonely place for Mrs. Thomas, and she often had lodgers stay. But truth be told, she wanted a servant. Her friend Mrs. Loder recommended a young woman who had worked for her on occasion, when Mrs. Loder's regular servant was unavailable. So upon this recommendation, Mrs. Thomas eagerly hired the woman. Mrs. Thomas was devoutly religious, and attended the Presbyterian service at the lecture hall on Hill Street twice on Sundays. She was always punctual for the evening service, which began at 6.30, except on March 2nd when she arrived 15 minutes late. A friend's servant, Julia Nichols, noticed Mrs. Thomas in the lobby at 6.45 and said she appeared anxious her voice shaking, her face flushed. Her bonnet was also slipping from her head, an unusual sight for a woman who prided herself on her appearance and how she was perceived. Mrs. Thomas said that the reason she was late was due to the, quote, neglect of her servant to return home at the proper time. She also said that when she reprimanded the servant for her timekeeping, the young woman flew into a rage. Mrs. Thomas always sat towards the front during the service, but on this occasion she took the first seat behind the door at the back of the hall. Julia Nichols recalled that Mrs. Thomas had left ten minutes before the service ended. After that, she disappeared. Delivery men had called at two Mayfield cottages and said Mrs. Thomas's maid placed her orders as usual. However, it was not until almost three weeks after she was last seen, the reclusive woman's disappearance was noticed by the authorities. Inspector Pearman from the local constabulary wanted to know more about the events that led to John Church and Henry Porter discovering the letter inside the pocket of a dress belonging to Mrs. Thomas. Porter told the officer that on March 4th, a woman his family had known from when she lived next door six years prior came to his home in Hammersmith at around 6pm. At first, Porter did not recognise the woman because she was wearing a fine silk dress and jewellery, but when she spoke, he knew it was Kate, someone he had become familiar with years earlier. Porter invited Kate in for tea with his wife and youngest son, Robert. 
Kate told them that she had married a man named Mr. Thomas, who had since died. Her aunt had also passed away, leaving her a very comfortable home in Richmond. However, Kate explained that her father had become very sick back in Ireland, so she wanted to sell all of her new possessions as quickly as possible so she could go home to take care of him. She asked Henry Porter to find her a broker to arrange the sale of some furniture, and he said he would. After tea, Kate requested that Porter and his 15-year-old son Robert walk her back to the railway station, and they happily obliged. She was carrying a black canvas bag, and young Robert offered to carry it for her. As they walked toward Hammersmith Bridge, Robert began to lag behind. His father thought he was looking in shop windows, but Robert was struggling with the bag because it was so heavy. He asked his father to help. Henry Porter thought the bag must have weighed around 20 to 25 pounds. The trio met up with Porter's oldest son and went for a drink at the Oxford and Cambridge pub. While they were there, Kate explained that she had to go to Barnes to meet a friend, but she would be back. Robert offered to carry the bag, but she said she could manage and would not be long. She returned less than half an hour later without the bag. Kate asked if Robert would accompany her home as she needed help with something, and his father agreed, as long as his son would be home that night. Robert and Kate went to the house in Richmond, and Kate gave the boy some rum to drink before telling him she needed him to help her carry something to Richmond Bridge, where she was meeting a friend. She brought out a wooden hinged box that was wrapped with cord. One of the handles was broken, so Robert held it by the cord, and they carried it to the bridge together. The box was so heavy they often had to stop to adjust their grip. When they arrived, Kate told him to put the box down and walk back the way they came, and she would see him after she had met her friend. A few seconds later, Robert heard a splash before Kate caught up with him and told him she had met her friend and he should hurry to the station to get home. However, he missed the last train, so had to stay the night. Kate would subsequently end up staying with the Porters over the next few weeks and she eventually brought her young son to stay with her. She made sure to bring supplies for her stay, including meat and vegetables taken from the house in Richmond. During this time, Robert's father would introduce Kate as Mrs. Thomas to John Church, the owner of the Rising Sun pub in Hammersmith. Church said he did not recognise the woman, even when she said she had previously lived in the area. Kate spoke about her move to Ireland and the items she had for sale. The publican decided to take a look. 
On March 13th, Church agreed to pay an £18 deposit before the outstanding balance would be paid when the furniture was removed. On the 18th, the movers arrived at two Mayfield cottages and they began to take the furniture out of the property. Their task was interrupted by the landlady, Mrs Ives, who asked to see Mrs Thomas. John Church told Kate that the landlady was asking for her, and Kate went outside. Church could not hear all that was said apart from Mrs Ives saying, I'll see about that. Within minutes, Kate or Mrs Thomas abruptly left, and they had no idea where she went. Armed with this information, the police conducted a search of two Mayfield cottages in Richmond on March 24th. The house was in disarray, and the furniture had been removed. In the kitchen, the area behind the stove was caked with grease, and charred bones, dress buttons and pieces of flannel were amongst the ashes in the fire grate. An axe and a razor were spotted in the coal cellar, and there were spots of blood over numerous areas, like the wallpaper and worktops. Officers also found Mrs. Thomas's diary, which indicated that all was not well between the mistress and her maid. The investigators did not have to wait long to discover where the maid had gone. When she fled in a hurry, she accidentally left behind a letter from her uncle in Ireland, which provided an insight into who she really was. Catherine Lawler was born in Killan, County Wexford in 1849. By the time she was 18, she had already served time in prison for theft. When she crossed the Irish Sea arriving in Liverpool, she said her name was Kate Webster, a sailor's widow. Over the next few years, she was convicted of several burglaries, mostly from boarding houses. She spent more time in prison for her crimes. After being released, Kate moved to London and stayed with a friend in Hammersmith. It was there in 1873 that she met the Porters who live next door. She told them she was an out-of-work servant and after a few months she moved away. Kate gave birth to a boy the following year, however provided varying accounts of who the father was. She adored being a mother, however the responsibilities it brought did not dissuade her from a life of crime. She stole to provide for herself and her son, who was often left in the care of friends while she was in prison. In January 1879, Kate Webster and her baby boy moved in with Sarah Crease, who Kate had known for some time. Sarah worked as a charwoman. On occasion, Kate would fill in for her when Sarah was unavailable. 
It was through Sarah's employer that Kate was introduced to Mrs. Thomas. Kate began working for Mrs. Thomas at the end of January 1879, and her son stayed with Sarah. Kate made sure to visit her little boy as often as she could, and paid Sarah Crease for taking care of him. Kate seemed to have every intention of living honestly and making enough money to support her son, but she soon began to butt heads with her employer. Mrs. Thomas was very particular about what she expected, and Kate was used to living life on her own terms. She later testified that Mrs. Thomas would go over her work and complain, which caused conflict between them. Mrs. Thomas also had an issue with Kate's lifestyle choices and how she spent her free time. Two Mayfield Cottages was two doors down from a pub called The Hole in the Wall, and Kate often went there when she was not working. Within a few weeks, Mrs. Thomas gave Kate her notice, and they agreed that she would work up until the end of February. Entries in Mrs. Thomas's diary suggested after this date, Kate had asked to stay on for a few more days, and Mrs. Thomas had said that would be fine. On March 2nd, Kate had a half day, and as usual, she went to the Hole in the Wall pub. Kate was late back that evening, which delayed Mrs. Thomas and caused her to be late for a Presbyterian service. It was believed that something sinister had occurred when Mrs. Thomas returned home, and all of the evidence pointed towards Kate Webster as the perpetrator. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. This episode of They Walk Among Us is brought to you in association with Centair. Ever entered a seemingly perfect space only to feel like something was missing? That's where Centair comes in. With over three decades of experience, Centair leads the scent marketing industry, scenting resorts, retail outlets, event spaces and more, partnering with major brands like Westin Hotels and Snap Fitness. 
Chances are you've already encountered their fragrances firsthand. And now Scentair is offering you a luxury fragrance experience in the comfort of your home. Visit Scentair.com to explore their online store and infuse your spaces with unforgettable scents. Scentair diffusers are sleek and fill your space with vivid fragrance for up to 300 hours. And the Scentair app lets you schedule your fragrance and control your intensity right from your phone. What's more, all of Scentair's more than 60 fragrances are phthalate-free, cruelty-free, safer families and EcoVad is certified sustainable. Differentiate your space with scent. Try luxury home fragrance trusted by the pros by going to scentair.com and using promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order. That's promo code AMONGUS for an extra 25% off your first order at scentair.com. When she was tracked down and arrested in Killan, Kate Webster was calm and amicable. She was brought to the ferry port and transported to London in the company of several police officers. Kate was found to be wearing a skirt and rings that were later identified as belonging to Mrs. Thomas. It supported the theory that Kate had posed as her employer for almost three weeks before she fled to Ireland. On the way back to London after being arrested on suspicion of murder, Kate asked if anyone else was in custody. If there is not, there ought to be, she said. It is very hard. The innocent should suffer for the guilty. In her initial statements, Kate Webster claimed that for years she had been having an affair with publican John Church after meeting him while living next to the Porter family. She said he had visited her at Mrs. Thomas's home, and according to Kate, she pretended he was her brother to not arouse her employer's suspicions. She alleged that Church had suggested they kill Mrs. Thomas and use her money to run off together to the United States. Kate said she would have no part in the plan, but after visiting her son one night... She returned to two Mayfield cottages and claimed that she saw Mrs. Thomas on the hallway floor gasping. Kate said John Church, who had a copy of the house key, was at the property. He told her to mind her own business and warned her not to say anything more about it. Scared, she left. When she returned, Mrs. Thomas was nowhere to be seen and it looked like someone had cleaned up. Kate claimed that later John Church had instructed her to bring a box from the house to Richmond Bridge, where Church took it from her. She said that as she walked away, she heard a faint splash. As for the meat and coal orders made from Mrs Thomas's account... Kate went on to say that the requests came from Henry Porter and John Church. She was so convincing in her explanation that Church was arrested and brought to police court. However, after a few weeks, the magistrates decided not to commit him for trial, and Kate Webster would face a jury alone. 
Legal proceedings began at the Old Bailey on July 2nd, 1879, before Mr Justice Denman. The Crown Prosecutor Sir Harding Gifford opened the trial by outlining the prosecution's case against the accused. Kate Webster, who also went by the surnames Lawler, Gibbs and Webb, had a lengthy criminal record and a reputation as a liar. When she arrived at the home of the Porter family on March 4th, she had seemingly risen from an out-of-work servant to a high-class lady of independent means. She had assumed the name Mrs Thomas and told them nothing about the real Mrs Thomas who she had worked for the month prior. Kate had carried a black bag with her that she later disposed of while Mr Porter and his teenage son were waiting for her in a pub. At the time, the black bag was believed to hold Mrs Thomas's severed head, which had not yet been found. She then enlisted Robert Porter to help her carry a heavy wooden box from two Mayfield cottages to Richmond Bridge. Robert said that he heard a splash, and the following day human remains were found in a box that Robert later identified as the one he had carried with Kate. She spent the next two weeks selling as much as she could from two Mayfield cottages before collecting her son from the care of Sarah Crease and boarding a coal boat back to Ireland, where she was arrested on March 29th. Despite trying to implicate John Church, the evidence showed that he had not met her before he was introduced by Henry Porter, a week after Mrs Thomas was last seen alive. The prosecution argued that Kate Webster had killed Mrs Thomas when she arrived home from the religious service on March 2nd, then dismembered her body before boiling her remains so it would be easier to dispose of them. The police had found an axe, a razor, a knife and charred bones in the fire grate at Mrs Thomas's home. There was a layer of what appeared to be fat coating the wall behind the copper stove. A witness, Mrs Hayhoe, who owned the Hole in the Wall pup, said that Kate had gone around with jars of fat two days after Mrs Thomas was last seen and tried to sell them as the best dripping around. The jars were believed to contain the remnants of the boiled body parts. As Kate Webster was brought to court each day, crowds followed and booed as she went by. Kate's defence team, Mr Slay and Mr Frith, argued that there was no evidence to prove that the remains were that of Mrs Thomas, and even if they were, there was no evidence that she had died an unnatural death. On July 8th, the jury returned with a verdict following an hour and 15 minutes of deliberations. They found Kate Webster guilty of the murder of Julia Martha Thomas. When she was asked if she had anything to say, 
Kate replied. I am not guilty. I have never done it, my lord. When I was taken into custody, I was in a hurry, and I made a statement against Church and Porter. I am very sorry for doing so, and I want to clear them out of it. And another thing, I was led to this. The man who is guilty of all of this is not in the case at all, nor never was. Therefore, I do not see why I should suffer for what other people have done. There was a child put in my hands in 1874. I had to thieve for that child and go to prison for it. The father of that child is the ruin of me since 1873 up to this moment, and he is the instigation of this. He was never taken into custody. I have cherished him up to this minute, but I do not see why I should suffer for a scoundrel who has left me after what he has done. The judge asked Kate Webster if there was any reason she should not be put to death, and she claimed she was pregnant. The jury of matrons was immediately impaneled to determine if there was any truth to Kate's claim and after an examination by Dr. Bond, he concluded that Kate was lying. Following on from comments at the end of the trial, a counsel filed an appeal in which it was now suggested it was not John Church, but the father of Kate's child who had orchestrated the murder. Out of loyalty to him, she had kept quiet. Kate said, I have been foolishly led away to my ruin by those who should have protected me. May my miseries, troubles, trials and awful fate serve as a warning to young girls never to be led away from the path of virtue and honesty. These are the dying words of the unhappy and unfortunate Catherine Webster. After a series of unsuccessful appeals, Kate Webster's execution was scheduled for July 29, 1879. The night before she was to be put to death, Kate made a full confession. She described how the relationship between her and Mrs. Thomas had broken down. At first I thought her a nice old lady, and I hoped that I might be comfortable and happy with her, but I found her very trying, Kate wrote. She used to do many things to annoy me during my work. When I had finished my work in my rooms, she used to go over it again after me and point out places where she said I did not clean, showing evidence of a nasty spirit towards me. This sort of conduct towards me by Mrs. Thomas made me feel an ill feeling for her, but I had no intention of killing her, at least not then. Kate Webster explained that after arguing with Mrs. Thomas on March 2nd, she waited for her employer to return home. Mrs. Thomas went straight upstairs, and Kate followed. She said they argued, which escalated into what Kate referred to as a quarrel. K 
Kate confessed. In the height of my anger and rage, I threw her from the top of the stairs to the ground floor. She had a heavy fall. I felt that she was seriously injured and I became agitated at what had occurred, lost all control of myself, and to prevent her from screaming and getting me into trouble, I caught her by the throat and in the struggle she was choked and I threw her on the floor. I then became entirely lost and without any control over myself and looking on what had happened and the fear of being discovered, I determined to do away with the body as best I could. I chopped the head from the body with the assistance of a razor which I used to cut through the flesh afterwards. I also used the meat saw and the carving knife. I prepared the copper with water to boil the body to prevent identity. As soon as I had succeeded in cutting it up, I placed it in the copper and boiled it. When I looked upon the scene before me and had blood around my feet, the horror and dread I felt was inconceivable. I failed several times in my strength and determination, but was helped on by the devil in this vile purpose. Kate explained that she had put Mrs. Thomas's head in the black bag she had carried to the porter's home, disposing of it in a way that she only disclosed to her solicitor. At the end of her signed confession, she wrote, I am perfectly resigned to my fate and am full of confidence in a happy eternity. If I had a choice, I would almost sooner die than return to a life full of misery, deception and wickedness. The bell tolled at Wandsworth Prison at 8.45am on July 29th, 1879. Kate Webster was helped up the stairs to the gallows by the prison chaplain, who she had confessed to before being pinioned and brought to stand on the trap door. Just before the switch was pulled, she called out, Lord, have mercy upon me. She was left to hang for an hour before being pronounced dead. However, the notoriety of the horrific crime still lived on. The following day, a bizarrely jovial sale was held at Mrs. Thomas's home where people could purchase her effects. Those who had followed the trial closely were delighted to see that John Church, who had been falsely implicated by Kate Webster, had enough money to purchase several items. A woman bought the bedspread from the victim's room and received rapturous laughter when she told her daughter, that's for you to sleep in. The bag of evidence, which included the axe, sold for five shillings. So where are we now? In October 2010, workmen excavating a property owned by Sir David Attenborough 
found a human skull. It was sent for carbon dating and was determined to have come from a woman over the age of 50 who had died between the mid-1600s and the late 1800s. The property where it was found used to be the rear of a pub called The Hole in the Wall, a place Kate Webster had frequented. In July 2011, the West London coroner Alison Thompson confirmed that the skull belonged to Julia Martha Thomas, who had been killed 131 years earlier. Acting Detective Inspector David Bolton testified at the inquest that the skull had fractures that were consistent with a head injury from falling down the stairs and low collagen levels, which indicated it had been boiled. The coroner recorded a verdict of unlawful killing and listed the cause of death as asphyxiation and head injury. The century-long Barnes mystery, as it had been dubbed, was finally solved. Thank you for listening, and special thanks to our patrons for their support. For more information on this episode please see the show notes or visit our website, theywalkamonguspodcast.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay authenticity guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.